In your Bible today, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter number 1. And before I begin reading the Scripture, though, I want to do a little commercial here that I wanted to hold and do right before I preach because I want everybody to hear me and give me the best attention of which you're capable, okay? So look up here and listen. I really need you to hear, hear me. You know, the Lord has blessed this church like very few churches. Everybody knows that, to look around and you can see that. God has been so good to us. But there's an area right now I'm deeply concerned about, and especially with our younger people in the church, younger members. And that is the whole area of evangelism. I don't know, I've, I've got multiple articles from various journals and from various uh, contemporary magazines and so on, and churches are not evangelizing. Even the so-called evangel. In fact, one article was evangelical churches that don't evangelize. How can you call yourself evangelical and not evangelize? Was the whole point. And it's my goal to train an entire new generation of people who have not been up until now soul winners faithful witnesses for Christ. You've not been that up until now, but you'd like to be that. Now, the last few times I've offered an evangelism training, you know who I got? I got the same people that come every time. The same 40, 50, 60 people would come. They're the people who have already been through faith, and they've been through EE, and they've been through all those programs. And the same people come, and the same people stay away. And I'm talking to the I, I, first of all, everybody that's joined the church here in the last uh, two years, we'll say, I'll set an arbitrary time. I'm talking to you. Uh, regardless of your age, I'd like for you to come. And maybe you've had evangelism training in other places, but you've not had ours. And it's going to be good this year, I promise you that. So I want you to come. And secondly, I'm especially talking to people in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Are you here today and you're in your 20s, your 30s, or your 40s? How many don't know? Okay. Well, if you're in your 20s, your 30s, or your 40s, I want you to come. You're the crowd I need. You see, I'm not going to be here forever. A few more years, or hope, maybe this year. Who knows? I'm going to check out. And there's a whole bunch of our people going to check out. And we need a whole generation of people who will practice the very thing this church was founded upon. This church, a, a, a man wrote a book years ago called The Ten Great Soul Winning Churches in America. Do you know who was in that book? Florence Baptist Temple, Florence, South Carolina, was named one of the ten great evangelistic soul winning churches in America. It was a nationally published book. It was in every bookstore in the country. Well, I don't know if he could say that about us today. But I have great optimism that that's going to change. And that's going to be my focus this year. And I believe the Lord has given us some young people that you'll open your heart to that. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give me six hours of your life to be trained to do the most important work a human being can do. And that work is to know how to effectively bring people to Christ. Now, you say, I know how. Well, if you do, why aren't you doing it? 
It's a question. If you knew how, why aren't we doing it? So uh, you may know how intellectually it's probably the heart thing we need more than anything right now. We need the Lord to give us that soul winner's heart. And I can teach you that. I'm very confident of that. I don't, I'm not boastful of it. I'm confident of it because I know. And I know it's training, it's technique more than anything if you have the heart for it. Give me six hours of your, time, of your life. Give it to me six Monday nights in a row. And uh, if you'll do that, you will go to heaven one day with other souls. That there will be souls in heaven because of you. And that's the greatest. The only thing I'm going to take to heaven are a few souls. God's enabled me to win. I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. And then I want you to get in your car and come out there with, and, and we're going to have a good time as well. And on Monday night, starting January 10, 6.30 p.m., January 10, 6.30 p.m., our evangelism training. Okay, that's a long commercial, but I needed to do that, and that's going to be my whole life thrust between now and through the first quarter of this year at least. Okay, now, through the month of December, I've been preaching to you exclusively on Sunday morning about the Lord Jesus because He's a great subject, isn't He? I'll never exhaust that subject to tell you about Jesus. And I started on the first Sunday of the month talking about the prophesied Christ. I gave you 40 Old Testament prophecies that all point specifically to Jesus himself. And then the second week, I talked to you about the exclusive Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he said, I'm the only way you can get to heaven. And I talked about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Then last week, we talked about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of godliness, how that God would send His only begotten Son into the world, the story of Christmas. Now today, the glorified Christ. You read about it with me in the book of Revelation, chapter number 1 today. Revelation chapter 1. As soon as you find it, stand to your feet with me. And, and uh, well, you've had a while. You probably have all found it, haven't you? Okay. Revelation chapter number 1, and I begin reading in verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. So John was exiled by the Romans to this island, uninhabited, bleak place, to shut him down so he stopped preaching the gospel of Christ. He said, I was there for the Word of God and for the testimony of Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. That's really important. The angel says to John, I want you to write down what I'm getting ready to tell you, and then I want you to send it to these seven churches in written form in a book. And so that's how you and I have it today. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And send it to the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven 
golden candlesticks or lampstands. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps or the breast with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white as snow, as, as white as wool. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a, two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Now write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter, future tense, and the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are seven churches, and you may be seated. And so the subject is the glorified Christ. What does the word glorified mean? It's not a word you and I use frequently in our everyday life. It's a theological word, perhaps. But the word glorified has the idea of something reaching its ultimate state, the highest usefulness and state that it will ever have in its existence. So this is Christ in his ultimate and highest state that we have a picture of here today. I'll illustrate it like this. There's a crude diamond lying somewhere in the ground over in South Africa where they mine most diamonds. And the diamond lies there in the earth, and one day it's found and discovered. They carry it in to the diamond company, and they polish it, and they sharpen it, and they cut it, and it sparkles And uh, then they package it up and they send it, we'll say, over to America. And there the little diamond is a solitaire alone. Nobody is enjoying it. Nobody is using it. It has no usefulness, really. But it's a beautiful, beautiful diamond with great, great potential. It's then sent over to a jeweler, and he has a nice gold ring, and he mounts the diamond in the ring And now it's a beautiful solitaire, a diamond ring, an expensive ring, and it's a beautiful diamond. And now they place it in the the case of a jewelry store somewhere. But nobody's ever really enjoyed that diamond. Up until now, its only function, its only purpose has simply been to just be itself, just to be beautiful and alone, just a diamond. And then one day, a young man comes in who's just gotten a promise from his girlfriend. She's going to marry him, and they're looking forward to their life together. And he goes to that case, and of all the diamonds there, he's attracted to that one. And he says, let me see it. And he takes it out, and he holds it in his hand. And in a moment, he says, that's it. That, that She will like this. And he pays the clerk for it, and he takes it home. And then 
he proposes to her, perhaps he's already done so, and she says yes, and in some special moment in their lives, he slips it onto her finger, and now that ring, that diamond is glorified. It's the highest ultimate function and use it will ever have. It could never achieve anything greater than to be to beautify the finger of that young woman and that young man, the symbol of their love together. The ring is glorified. It's reached its ultimate state. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus Christ is shown to us as the glorified Christ. His state after his resurrection, his state as he is now, We've just come through the Christmas season, of course, and it's easy to think of Jesus as a babe in a manger because that's mostly what you hear about. Now, it's the day after Christmas, and we have to come back to reality, don't we? And let me tell you something. Jesus is not a babe in a manger. Jesus Christ is the glorified Son of God, just like He's pictured here and the only picture we have of Jesus Christ. Did you ever wonder what Jesus looked like when He was on earth? I've wondered about that. How tall was he? How much did he weigh? What were his features? wonder if I would have met him coming down the street, what what would he look like? What kind of man would he appear to be? Well, nobody knows because nobody saw him. And uh, if you didn't understand this, they didn't have cameras back 2,000 years ago. (laughs) So nobody took a photo of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, I know this about him, he was an Israeli Jew of the first century. Before the Jews were dispersed, so you would say, I guess he's a pure-blooded Jew. He was fully Jewish in every part of his life. And first century Jews of that period of time, they had olive skin. They wouldn't have been as white as you or me for the most part, but they wouldn't have been as dark as some people are. They would have been olive skinned. They would have had dark eyes. They would have had black hair and a black beard. Every Jewish male wore a beard at that time. Now, you see these pictures of Jesus drawn by these Renaissance painters 15, 1,700 years later. And I've seen pictures, many of them, old master's paintings. And Jesus had white, real light-colored skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. Well, I've got news for you. Jesus didn't have blue eyes, and he didn't have blonde hair. He was a first-century Jew of the Jews, and he would have appeared like all of his people that were his kindred, humanly speaking. So that's as close as we can come to what Jesus looked like. We don't have any drawings that have survived of him. We certainly don't have any photos. There's not even hardly any historical records that deal with his appearance. And in the book of Revelation, it's a book that is used, it's full of symbols. In fact, it says here, John wrote down the things that were signified or signified, you could say. So the book of Revelation describes things in terms of symbols. 
Now, here's something. You might even want to write this down in the margin of your Bible. I think it's worth your keeping it. And the statement I want to make is this, that every symbol used in the book of Revelation is explained or appears somewhere else in the Bible. Every symbol that you're going to read about in the book of Revelation appears or is explained somewhere else in Scripture. And so here John, exiled on this island, this bleak island, the only people that lived there were Roman soldiers who worked in salt mines to provide salt for Rome. And John is there, exiled and alone, and he hears a voice behind him. He turns around. He says the voice in verse 10 is like a trumpet. So it's a trumpet blast. It's, it's a loud voice behind him. It startles him. And when he does, he sees this figure, and this figure is Jesus, but it's Jesus presented to us by symbols for the most part. But when we look at those symbols, here's what it tells us. It's not so much what he looks like, it is what he is like. That's very important. This is not so much about what he is like, or what he looks like, rather, but it's what Jesus is like in his character. And so we have this description, number one, of the glorified Christ. And I want you to take your Bible now and look at it closely and follow me. And I'm going to go just as quickly as I can through this area of Scripture here. Revelation chapter 1, let's start in verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spake with me, said John, and being turned He said, I saw seven golden candlesticks, candlesticks. And so he then says, and in the midst of the candlesticks, there's a figure, there's a person, there's one like to the Son of Man. Notice he calls them candlesticks, but it's not a candelabra. At first, I thought, I'll get one of our candelabras we use for weddings here. I'll bring it up here on the platform and illustrate it, but that would, that's not what this was. A candelabra, you know, has candles on each side and uh, one in the middle, Six, or three on each side and one in the middle, usually seven candles. But that's not what this is. This is really a lampstand. They didn't have candles in those days. Candles had not yet been invented. So what they had were lamps. And there's not one stand like a candelabra. There's seven of these lampstands, or, or uh, each one of them with one lamp in the center of it, usually fed by oil. And so we see Jesus, and Jesus is standing in the midst of seven of these lampstands, each one containing one lamp. Now, why a lampstand? Well, it's pretty obvious. Christ is the light of the world. And from Him, all the light of the universe will emanate one day in the millennial reign of Christ. But we go down to verse 20 because I want to show you what I just said. I want to illustrate it to you. I told you every symbol used in the book of Revelation is explained or given somewhere else in the Bible. So you don't have to say, oh, that's just what you think it means. No, this is what the Bible says it means. And so let's go to verse 20 and find out what these 
lampstands or candlesticks represent. And look at the last phrase of verse 20. There's a colon there, and then there's another phrase, and the seven candlesticks which you saw back up there in verse 12 and 13, they are the seven churches of Asia that we read about back in verse number 11 and gave you the names, all those churches. So Jesus, where is Jesus? Here's what I want you to get. This is so critically important. The only picture we see of Jesus in the entire Bible, he is walking among his churches. Seven local churches that represent all the churches of all time and all history. Where is Jesus? The last picture, the only picture we have of him in the Bible. He's interested in his churches. He's standing in the midst of his churches, the Scripture says here. Now, that is so significant. I'd make you a note somewhere in the margin of your Bible, because where is Jesus at the, uh, the glorified Christ after his resurrection? He's involved with his churches. He's in the midst of his churches. Let me say something, and I want to say it as kindly and, and, and gently, and yet it needs to be said. We began an online uh, distribution of our services. Oh, my, we were doing online work long before COVID came along. We were, we were one of the first churches probably anywhere in the southeast to be streaming our services online. We were doing it for two or three years. We, we started out doing it for the people um, who couldn't be here and for our TV audience who would write us and say, you're, you're on in the morning, but we'd like to see your uh, evening service, your Wednesday night services as well. And these were people who were regular watchers away from here. They didn't even live in our community. And so we started online services. Well, when COVID came, of course, for several weeks, that's all we did. We didn't meet together. And I stood here and preached into those cameras, and, and you sat at home and watched it because of the slowing the spread and all that kind of thing. Now, since COVID, of course, we're down in our attendance, and uh, I, I know that our online audience is up, but our in-service audience is down. And we're going to work as hard as we can this year to correct that. But you see, uh, the, the terminology changed during COVID. Here's the terminology. I even see churches uh, advertising this. We have uh, on-campus church and we have off-campus church. We have uh, a church here in the building, but we have church online or streaming church. Now, let me take you back to the Bible, and you have church. You really have church when Jesus Christ gathers with his people. There's no promise. There's no promise in the Bible that, that Christ comes to the living room to an online, quote, worship service. And I want to do everything I can to get people back in church. Because I've had hundreds of people tell me, you know, I've watched online, but it's not the same preacher. No, it isn't. And, and no criticism of, of the people who can't be here. I, I want you to clearly understand. I'm not trying to be hard on you. But I am saying, 
Where do you find Jesus? You find him walking in the middle of his assembly, his churches, where his people gather together. Where, what did he say? When God's people gather together, there I will be in their midst. And so let's make a distinction between the church and watching services. There's a big distinction, and you can, it's certainly implied right here. Now, in verse 13, notice with me his name. In the midst of the candlesticks, the churches, there's one like the Son of Man. And this is the name he is referred to here, the Son of Man. By the way, Jesus referred to himself by that name more than any other name. A few times he said, I am the Christ, I am Jesus. But most of the time he said, I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Many other verses like that. So this is the name that Jesus chose to call himself by. Verse 13, his clothing. He has a garment that goes down to his feet with a golden sash across it here. Now, it describes him like that here. But if you'll read the Bible and the history of the Bible, there were three groups of people in the Bible that dressed exactly like Jesus dresses here. They wore these long garments, these robes, all the way to the foot, and they had this golden sash across it. Who were those groups? Well, first of all, the prophets. Many of the prophets dressed in exactly that way. Secondly, the priest dressed that way. When they went to make their offerings and their sacrifices, and offer up the prayers for the people. And then the kings dressed that way. Now, the prophet, the priest, and the king all dressed with that, in that manner. It gave them a majesty. It gave them a dignity, if you will, a, a, a sense of presence. And what are the offices of the Lord Jesus Christ? What You take the teaching of all the Bible on Jesus, and what are the three offices of the Lord? First of all, he was our prophet. He came teaching us and proclaiming truth as a prophet. Secondly, he came as our great high priest, offering up his own body for sacrifices and praying for us. Even today, he is praying for us. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And so he is the prophet and the priest. But hey, wait a minute. He's also our coming king, and someday he's going to rule and reign over the entire universe. And so Jesus fulfills every one of those offices, and he wore the appropriate clothing. He dressed the part, if you understand what I'm saying. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white as snow and wool. And that represents his purity, his holiness, his absolute impeccable righteousness that Jesus Christ portrayed. And then in verse 14 again, his eyes. Notice his eyes. They're like a flame of fire. I think of a laser, a flame of fire, a modern-day laser. His eyes are like lasers. They look right on through you. They penetrate his eyes see everything that happens. We know that. In fact, the Bible says his eyes run to and fro across the entire earth to look for the righteous people to see, to see a righteous man. And then if you will notice 
in verse number 15, his feet. They're likened to brass or bronze, but not just brass or bronze like's out here on our statute on the front yard. But this, this brass, this bronze is burning. It's like a flame of fire. There's life. There's activity there in his feet. The, and that reminds me, brass in the Bible, all the way through your Bible, and I could show you many verses. I just don't have the time. But brass always represents judgment. And so his feet are the feet that will come one day and bring judgment to the world. Just like the brazen altar was the place of God's judgment upon sin in the tabernacle in the temple right here, the feet of Jesus are the feet of his justice. In verse 15, his voice is like many waters, many waters. I'm sure most of us in this part of the country, we've been down to the beach. We've stood there. I've stood there in the surf one evening, I remember years ago, and there was a big storm coming in. And the waves were getting up high, and you had to move back up off of the beach to get it to escape the water coming in. And the roar, the sound of those waters in that storm, that surf, it was almost deafening. It sounded like a freight train was coming by. Or if you go stand underneath a giant fall like the Niagara Falls up in New York, and you stand there, you can't even talk. You have to holler at the person standing right beside you because of the roar of the waters. And that's what he uses here, comparing the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's full of power. It's full of, of, of strength, his voice like many waters. Verse 16, his right hand, seven, he has seven stars. Now, obviously, Jesus Christ doesn't have walk around with seven literal stars. This is all symbolic, as I said. But you go back to verse 20 again, you'll see who those stars are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. But let me tell you something about the word angels. The very word translated angels in your Bible is often translated messenger, messenger. So it can be either an angel or a messenger. In fact, the role of angels in the Bible is to be a messenger, right? So when you see angels appearing, what are they doing? They're carrying a message to somebody every time. So the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. Now, a lot of Bible commentators have different opinions about this, but angels have never been messengers to the churches. They've come to individuals, but there's no record of them being the messengers to the churches. Now, theoretically, uh, if you take the idea of the guardian angel, which I believe in, that angels are assigned to watch over and protect God's people, it, it could be very conceivable that the Lord would assign a messenger to the Florence Baptist Temple or to any church. But the Bible doesn't say that. I'm, I'm speculating when I say that. But here's what makes sense if because you always interpret within a context. And you don't see angels as being messengers to the churches, but the churches have messengers. So if you read that, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Who is it that is the messenger of the church? And most commentators say that's referring to the pastors. Who is the messenger of the Florence Baptist Temple? For the most part, it's me. I'm the pastor of the church. And so this is written to me 
And I think the reason it's written to me is that the Lord wants us to constantly preach about the glorified Christ, about Jesus Christ and all of His glory and all of His greatness, that we lift Him up. I would tell you, if you move away from here and join another church, one of the ways you would evaluate the preaching of, that, of the pastor and, and of that church is, do they really hold up the Lord Jesus Christ and talk about Him all the time? I mean, He is the theme of the New Testament church. It's Jesus, isn't it? It's all about Him. How he came, how he lived, how he taught, how he died, how he resurrected, and how he's coming back. And so the way you evaluate my preaching, among other things, and any preacher, among other things, is how much does he talk about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the messenger to the church, and he is to communicate truth about the Lord Jesus himself. And in verse 16, his mouth. It says he has a two-edged sword in his mouth. Again, obviously symbolic, not a literal sword. But I'm reminded because the Bible interprets the Bible in other places, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, where it says there that the Word of God is quick, alive, and powerful, and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. So what Christ has in his mouth symbolically symbolically is His Word, His words. And those words are quick. Those words are transformative. Those words are life-giving words that Jesus, the glorified Christ, has. Ephesians chapter 6 and 17 refers to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so, Jesus comes with His Word. In fact, He's referred to in John 1 as the Word itself, isn't He? And look in verse 16. Notice His countenance, His face. It's like the sun shining in its strength. The strength of the sun would be at noontime, at its pinnacle, its highest point. And looking at the face of Jesus would be like looking at the sun at noon. There's a radiance that would overwhelm you. You remember the apostle Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, and it blinded him. For three days, he couldn't even see after that. And so his countenance, like the sun in its strength, his face shining. Now, that is the word picture of Jesus Christ described here when John met him. And you see, the first time he came as a babe in the manger, he came as a lamb. The lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world, John 1. But this time in Revelation, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And throughout the rest of Revelation, you will see him often called a lamb, but also just as often called the line. Look in Revelation 5 and verse 5 there. And it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I referenced it last week, I think. In Revelation 5, it doesn't tell you this at the beginning, so let me give you a little insight here. 
In Revelation 5, it describes Jesus coming back to heaven after he resurrected and left the earth and ascended to heaven. Revelation 5 is the description of Jesus coming home to heaven after his earthly ministry was over. And boy, what a chapter it is. And all these people are worshiping Jesus. And verse 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Jesus is back home in heaven forevermore. And Jesus is not called here the Lamb. Jesus here is called what? He's the Lion, the conquering Lion, the glorified Jesus Christ. Now, this is the Christ, listen to me, with whom we have to deal. We don't have to deal with, we're not going to be accountable to the babe in the manger. We're going to have to deal through all of eternity with the glorified, powerful Lion of Judah, who was our Lamb, who purchased us with his blood. Well, let's look at John's response to all this, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He just passed out. I mean, he was overcome. He was overwhelmed. He was awe-stricken. I fell at his feet as dead. Here's an interesting thing. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every time people see him, they fall at his feet. Let me say that again. After the resurrection of Jesus, every time people see him, they hit the deck. They fall down and worship him. In Matthew 28, the apostles see him on the mountain outside of Galilee, and just before he gives his great commission, what does he do? The apostles fall down, and they worship him. Christ in his glory demands worship. Christ in a manger doesn't necessarily demand worship. Christ glorified demands worship. And everybody who met him, they gave it to him. Saul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, he sees the glorified Christ. What does he do? Down on the road, blind for three days. Isn't it interesting now that here, the very last time that Jesus appears in the Bible to us in detail like this. He falls down, or, or, or people fall, the person in front of him falls down. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, I think it is, it says, Someday when the world is before him, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, not the Lamb, the Lord, the boss, the master, the one who came to take over. You see, it's easy to preach on gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Everybody loves that. But there's also a picture of Jesus as he is today in our Bible. He's the glorified Christ, the powerful one. The first and the last, he says to John here in one of these verses, in verse number 18, the one who was the first, the creator 
of the universe and the last, the one who will consummate the history of the universe. God Almighty. In fact, He's the eternal one. We see that in what it says here. And so John is overwhelmed by this. I was watching a, some program was on television. Some country singer, a lady country singer, was getting an award. And she got her award, and she hung her, hugged her trophy up to her chest. And she looked up, and, and she says, oh, he's my buddy. He's my buddy. And she keep, kept saying, he's my buddy. Uh-uh. I'm sorry. He's not my buddy. He is my Lord. He's the glorified, all-powerful, omnipotent King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not your buddy. Now, he loves you. You can approach him, but don't denigrate him. Don't bring him down. He's who the Word of God says he is. And the world today, evangelical Christianity today, needs a new strong dose of the greatness and glory and majesty and power and omnipotence of Almighty God in Jesus Christ. We've brought him down. He's glorified. And so what is John? Now, John has fallen down before him, and what's Jesus' message to him? Well, Jesus said to him, fear not. First thing he said, how about that? The last fear not in the Bible, too, by the way, is this one. John, don't fear. I know my presence is overwhelming to you, but... Don't you be afraid. At his birth, what was the first thing the shepherds said? Fear not. Throughout his ministry, what's the most frequent phrase you find recorded in the New Testament about Jesus? Fear not. And now we come, his message to the churches. That means us. His message to the churches today is what? Fear not. How appropriate in the times in which we live. Because so much of the world today is gripped with panic and fear. and So many people, they're, they're living a fear-driven life. And his message to the church is what? Church, don't fear. There's just one antidote for fear. Just one. You know what it is? It's called faith. It is relying upon the promises of God. If Jesus Christ promised it, you can count on it today, my friend. You can count on it. You can go to the bank on it. If Jesus promised it, then act on it. Don't be driven. Don't live a fear-driven life. Two years ago, right before COVID started, we had a theme for the year, and it was Press on in faith. And we gave everybody one of these bracelets. And I look around and see if anybody's wearing them. And me and three more are still wearing them. But you know what? I love my little bracelet. And I look at it. And often I think about press on in faith. Just keep going. Just don't quit. Just keep on believing what God said to us. Amen? I know we've had... We've had the virus, and then we've had the Delta, and now we've got the Omicron, and someday we're going to get something else. And if it isn't this, it's going to be something else. And there's always an excuse, and the Satan is always going to be standing on our back giving us fear messages. Well, let's press on in faith. Let's press on. His message to his churches is what? 
Fear not. I'm the first and the last, the eternal one. I'm he that liveth and was dead, the resurrected one. Who else could say, only Jesus, nobody else in all of history could say, I was dead and now I'm alive and I'm going to live forevermore. Only Jesus could say that, the glorified Christ. And then look at verse 18. I want you to underline this. I have the keys. Keys in the Bible always mean authority. They mean entrance. I have the power to get in and get out, to lock the door or to open the door. Keys are authority. I have the keys, the authority over death and hell, over life and death. Now, I'm not telling you to be imprudent or a risk taker. But you know what I am telling you? That God has the number of your days. And you press on in faith. He's in charge of your life. And you can do everything you think you can do to protect yourself. And if it's your time, you're going to go out of here. And you know what? You're not going to go out of here until then. And we need that. That's a comfort to us. That's a strength to us today. He determines the time of our life and our death. Our times are in his hands. This year, no doubt, with just the number of people we have, some of us will go to meet him. And like last year, some went to meet him. Our times are in his hands. Just make sure that you're ready to meet him every day when you get up. Now, an old man was sitting in a gymnasium after a ball game. He was sitting there reading his Bible. He was the custodian. He came to the ball game because he had to. He wasn't particularly interested. And so he'd been reading his Bible while they were cleaning up afterwards and people were getting ready and he was going to stay behind and lock the door. The coach of the team came out the door and he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm reading my Bible. He said, you getting anything out of it? He said, yeah, I'm getting a whole lot out of it. Well, what are you getting out of it? He said, what, he said, what have you learned sitting here reading your Bible this evening? He said, I learned this. Jesus is fixing to win. Jesus is fixing to win. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? That's what Revelation chapter 1 teaches. Jesus is fixing to win. And we're on the victory side if we're his children, aren't we? Amen? Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.